It's mid-May, 2020, just outside of Missoula, Montana, and I'm sitting in a small inflatable raft. I quickly ferry across a fast-moving Clark Fork River at high water and pull a microphone out of my dry bag. When I look across the river from where I'm standing, I see dense trees. I see a river working overtime, flushing sediment from all of its upriver tributaries and the golden hour sunlight showing off on the mountains to the north. If I turn around with my back to the river, I'm met by a decades-old man-made gravel berm, a berm that stretches an incredible four miles of river. It's hard to believe, but just a couple hundred feet away, up and over this berm, sits an empty 3,200-acre industrial complex with 900 acres of dangerous settling sludge and wastewater ponds. From the Clarkport Coalition, this is the podcast Toxic, the mess at Smurfettstone. My name is Kyle Pucko, producer and genuinely curious question-asking narrator for this podcast. The goal or the why behind showing up in your podcast feed is to shine a spotlight on the Smurfettstone cleanup. What is it? How exactly did we get here? Who's responsible, what's been done, and what's being done? And in the limited amount of time that we have in our busy lives, what can we do to help take this project across the finish line? January 14, 2010. Smurfit Stone's Environmental Affairs Office states, the company plans to remove all hazardous materials from the mill site. On the last shift of the last day, the engine stopped, the gates closed, and the parking lots emptied out. So are you a year-round bike commuter? Well, I'm not commuting anymore, so I'm hardly riding my bike at all these days. In the, taking it with me up to Blackfoot tonight. When you used to, would you Yeah, well, yeah, pretty much, except for I didn't really ride on the ice in the as much. Yeah, there are those times... Peter Nielsen spent 26 years working for Missoula County. He retired just a few years ago as the Water Quality District Supervisor. It's worth noting that while Peter is our first interview, so many people we talk to and so many people involved with the cleanup from scientists to local politicians would say, have you talked to Peter about this? You should really talk to Peter Nielsen if you haven't already. Peter rode his bike to our studio, sat down behind the microphone with nothing in front of him but a glass of water and recounted a life spent on rivers, his career in environmental protection and the troubling history of what's now known as the Smurfit Dump. Well, I moved here actually just um, 40 years ago now in, um, in, in September of 1980 uh, to go to graduate school. And at that time, I was interested uh, in becoming a, a wildlife biologist. Um, that didn't end up panning out, but I uh, entered um, the environmental studies program at the University of Montana uh, a year or so later. At the time, I was pretty connected to water uh, through my work. I was a, a river guide and uh, later owned my own outfitting business with my wife and operated here on, in Missoula on the Alberton Gorge, on the Clark Fork, and, nice. and on the Blackfoot River and other streams in our area. And that was where I really began to uh, have my first connection to the paper mill. Of course, we're, we're floating the river that's you know, 30, 40 miles downstream from this thing. Uh, and at that time, the mill was operating at full bore, and 
the discharge limits were not as stringent as they were later. So there was a lot of highly colored black effluent being pumped into the river on a regular basis, and we would see big rafts of foam in the eddies down there in the in the gorge, and lots of dead fish in the summer. Uh, it was um, the river was not as clean as it is today by a long shot. People were enjoying rivers that have dramatically improved in quality over the last 30, 40 years around here. And uh, it wasn't that way then. One of the people we can thank for the improvements in quality of rivers, Peter Nielsen. Well, I spent six years at Clark Fork Coalition, and then I took a job with uh, Missoula County Health Department in 1992. And one of the first things I did on that job was to help create um, a new organization called the Missoula Valley Water Quality District, which had just been, uh, there had just been legislation adopted the previous year to allow local governments to, to do this sort of thing. So you create a local water quality program that, that has stability over time and an ability to handle uh, things at a local level to protect water resources. Missoula took that step early on in 1992. It's one of the things Missoula has done to be a leader in, in water protection. We asked Travis Ross, the person that took the Water Quality District Supervisor reins when Peter retired, to tell us a bit about the roles and responsibilities of this position. Yeah, I would love to. And, and I'd, I'd just like to st- step back even a couple of steps and, and recognize that Montana is one of two states in, in, our, in the United States that um, that has a constitutional right to a clean and helpful environment. Um, one of two, and that's that's at a fundamental level. Um, it it illustrates the, uh, the the statewide connection to our waters and 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 their importance and significance. Missoula County gets uh, 100% of its drinking water from uh, from groundwater and and early on we we recognize that the quality of our groundwater affects public health and it, and it, and it affects our um, our bottom line as well um, you know treatment of of water is expensive prevention of contamination is by far a better a better economic and um, public health uh, based decision, and so in the early 90s, the um, the legislature allowed communities to form water quality districts, uh, passed legislation that that enabled those communities to to vote and create districts, and that's when Missoula's district was formed. Uh, was one of the first, if not the first, in the state to form um, with a a mission that's very clear and uh, really has not been revised since it was created, and that is to, uh, to protect and improve the quality of Missoula's surface and groundwater supplies. Peter took this mission seriously in everything he did. In the case of Smurfett Stone, he studied any and every resource he could get his hands on to have arguably the most comprehensive understanding of anyone on the planet regarding the history, the scale of the problem, and the parties involved. So the mill opened back in 1957, and it's been through a lot of different owners um, over those years um, until it closed in 19, excuse me, 2010. 
Um, at that time, it was owned by Smurfit Stone Container. Um, but there, um, as I mentioned, it was owned by Champion in the 80s. Smurfit um, Stone Container took it over uh, from Champion in the late 80s, and then they merged with Smurfit later. Um, so, but what happened here is that this, this mill was first built in 1957. So it had been around for quite a few years. What are we talking here? 50, 53 years of operation? Yeah. So when it first opened, the mill, um, despite making promises to the local sportsmen's groups and, and others that were interested in the river and fishing resources in particular, uh, they failed to provide any means of treating or storing their effluent. Effluent for those who don't know, because I certainly didn't, liquid waste discharge into a river. Uh, so their, their effluent was pumped directly to the river for the first year, or almost two, I think, before they finally, in response to great protests over the fish kills that were happening in the river, they finally installed their first wastewater storage ponds. What they did is they went out there with big bulldozers and just dozed up the, the river floodplain into gravel berms to store effluent and let it seep out into the groundwater. And it would seep out gradually over months rather than being discharged in directly um, immediately. That sounds like a disgusting strategy. So that was the way they did it. And they would uh, then hold that wastewater until spring runoff when there was more dilution and discharge it all then. Very lightly regulated in the early days. But these storage ponds is part of the history here. That is, so there were initially just a few of them, and then they gradually grew as the operation grew, and, and then eventually covered more than a thousand acres or so of these storage ponds. But a couple of the ponds then became destinations for other refuse that was disposed at the mill. So this mill operated from 1957 until 2010. And it wasn't until 1993 or so, 1993, 1994, that they shipped any of their waste anyplace else other than into the ground uh, out there by the river. Wow. So everything that they produced at that mill, every bit of waste, whether it was from the lunchroom or from the vehicle maintenance shop, went into the dump. It's a bit mind-boggling to think about. I'm 35 years old, growing up in a reduce, reuse, recycle culture in upstate New York. To hear Peter describe the practice of digging an industrial pit for the disposal of, well, anything and everything. I was curious about what else was out there in those dumps and asked the question to Missoula County Commissioner Josh Slotnick. We'll hear more from him in future episodes, but here's his take. The site is heterogeneous. And what I mean by that, it's the opposite of homogeneous. So instead of one thing, like at the Milltown Dam, behind the dam, there were layers of sediment. And you could do a representative sample. You could scoop up some of the sediment and be like, okay, we scooped up one pound of sediment and there's 10 tons. But from this one pound, we know how much heavy metal there's going to be in it. It's sort of like you can take a you know, a vial of, of, of your blood and you can be like, oh my God, this guy's got this disease or no, this person's super healthy, right? Mm-hmm. We can't do that out at Smurfit because if you dig into the ground, you get, you come up with clean earth or you come up with dirty earth and then you go 10 feet farther and you do it again and it's different. It's hundreds of acres. Well, it isn't just the size, it's the nature of the dump. It was a dump. 
So like at our dump, people go dump things. Well, at Smurfit, there was a time, and, and I'm not saying anybody was villainous. This was a different era. We're talking like the 50s, 60s, 70s. People just had different conceptions. So And a lot of people were just doing what they were told to do at work. They'd go pick up a 50-gallon a drum of something nasty with a forklift and drive it out back and dump it in a pit and throw some dirt over it because that's what they did. Some of those drums, there's a whole bunch of those drums supposedly, that are in the earth that are not yet leaking. And these, these dumps went unregulated. Um, they let them cap a portion of the dumps with local uh, clay-like soil, um, which in theory is good. It keeps uh, rainwater from infiltrating the cap. But what good does that do if the stuff's already buried in the groundwater? Right. <clears throat> and so I found photographs in their files, which I would carry around to every meeting on poster boards and show people. It's like, <laughs> this is what DEQ found in the files in 1992. This is a picture. That's a drum out there. That's another drum over there. Drum of... A, just, well, that's a good question. Right. And why didn't they ask that question and find out what's in those drums? I'm a Westerner. I grew up in Colorado. I went to college in Colorado. I ski-bummed after college in Colorado. So the West is stitched into me, into my heart, my soul, my mind. I developed all kinds of passions um, around the offerings that we have in the West. I mean, it's nature at its most multitudinous. This is Karen Knudsen, Executive Director for the Clarkport Coalition in Missoula, Montana, a hardworking nonprofit and also the reason this podcast exists, protecting and restoring the Clark Fork River by removing pollution, protecting clean water, and teaching people how to care for rivers and streams. So the concept of a river is well beyond just the water contained between two banks. Um, river systems and therefore river basins include all those feeder creeks and streams that capture the snow melt from the high country every year and run it down into the Clark Fork River. So we have, um, you know, just incredible diversity of river systems or tributary systems within the Clark Fork watershed. And because our mission actually focuses on the entire river basin, it's a huge job. And the Clark Fork River starts at the headwaters in Butte, Montana, and flows 320 miles to Lake Ponderay, capturing water from mighty tributaries like the Blackfoot and Rock Creek and the Bitterroot and the Flathead. So it becomes such a different river system by the time you get downriver. I asked Karen about the historical treatment of the river. The headwaters of the Clark Fork watershed, though, have been these historically hardworking waters because geologically, the Clark Fork's headwaters are mineral rich. So that mining boom back in the 1800s and throughout practically the entire 20th century um, really set the tone in our watershed for how people, communities, industries interact with the river. And it wasn't always kind, I have to say. It was a heavy hammer approach. Um, I think there was this assumption that nature will recover, or maybe that wasn't even an issue. It was just we need to use the minerals, we need to use the logs, we need to graze the land, and the river is basically a waste receptacle. In 1983, there was an event that came along 
The mill, as I said, had expanded operations in the 70s. And as, as a result of that permit for expansion, they had promised to uh, keep pace uh, with their effluent treatment, uh, despite their dramatically increased production levels. What they did, um, the mill was owned at that time by a company called Champion International. And they had increasingly ran up against the limits of their ability to store their wastewater in these large ponds out there. They would store it up and then release it uh, during spring runoff, basically. And uh, that was the only time that they were allowed to discharge initially, was during spring runoff, when there was a lot of dilution. They came out then in 1983 and proposed to um, dramatically increase their, their discharge and discharge year-round, including during low flows when the river is most vulnerable and the river's hot and, and there's low water and, um, and when people are on the water, too. If you're starting to feel a bit nauseous, join the club. I then asked Peter if this was a process that continued right up until the mill closed. His response was encouraging. And that really galvanized a coalition of interests that were a fairly broad interest, really, uh, group, but their focus was on the river. But it was people from outfitters to chambers of commerce to fish and wildlife groups to environmental groups. And so that's the genesis of the Clark Fork Coalition. Montanans stepping up to protect the Clark Fork River. And just the right time, this episode really needed an uplifting turning point. The Smurfit site actually is close to our institutional heart just because that is part of our origination story at the Clark Fork Coalition. Back in 1985, Smurfit was owned by Champion Pulp Mill, and there were some concerns at the time that the mill owners were trying to relax discharge into the river when the community had fought hard to actually um, request that the mill owners put in some treatment so they're not just pumping industrial byproducts into the Clark Fork River. There had been a lot of fish kills, a lot of foam, stench. So back in the 1970s, the community you know, worked hard to try to force champion mill owners to clean up their game. Well, then suddenly in mid-1980s, they were asking state regulators if they could actually dial back on their game. So that didn't work out so well. Um, there was a lot of energy, pu huge public outcry about that proposal, with hundreds of people coming from both upstream and down of Missoula, packing hearing rooms and <clears throat> saying, you know, nope, this is not how we're going to treat our river anymore. A public hearing at the city council chambers in Missoula that was famous for uh, changing the course of, of things, uh, that there was busloads of people that showed up from Idaho and and, and, and from uh, downstream communities like Superior and uh, Thompson Falls and Plains and, and people from Missoula, of course, and there was hundreds of people packing into this hearing room to object to this. And I will say that, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it didn't end up on an adversarial note. It wasn't confrontational. Um, the Clark Fork Coalition sat down with mill owners and representatives from the state agency regulating discharge and hammered out a solution. Which then led to some years of study and environmental analysis. The coalition 
then formed, and it was our initial focus, one of our primary initial focuses uh, to uh, fight this permit. And ultimately, we uh, ended up um, negotiating an agreement with the company uh, to uh, limit their discharges, to not allow year-round discharge, and to impose the first ever uh, limits on a couple of components of that discharge, phosphorus and nitrogen, that were particularly harmful for the river. A true David vs. Goliath moment, citizens showing up by the busloads to prevent a company from getting a discharge permit. And it worked. The Clark Fork Coalition was formed, and the mill had environmental regulations to follow that might seem like common sense today, but were somewhat new to big industry back then. By the 90s, some of their waste handling practices were getting to be up to snuff. But that was already, you know, 30, 40 years of operation of stuff being dumped into the ground out there when they really didn't care about it. December 15, 2009. Smurfett Stone Container Corporation announces the permanent closure of the expansive lineboard plant. 417 workers were told they had two weeks before they had to find a new job. For an explanation as to why, Smurfett President Steve Klinger writes in a brief statement that the mills were, quote, high-cost facilities that do not provide adequate returns over the long term for the company. And really, I think what, what the companies have done, what, what Smurfett Stone did by going bankrupt and then transitioning and selling to further companies, just to distance themselves from liability. And in effect, they have sold Missoula down the river. They have left us with their toxic legacy. They pulled out, made a whole lot of money doing it, and they left us a mess behind. What is being left behind that we have to deal with here? How concerned do we need to be? And so one of the things that, um, that we did early on is uh, I called up um, the Department of Environmental Quality over in Helena, and asked them to come over and take a look at their files. And I just set aside a day and drove over there, and I, I needed the whole day. <laughs> it took a while to get through yeah. stuff and make copies of things that were of interest, but I, was, I learned a lot that day that I didn't know, uh, and I wish I had known earlier. Uh, I, I don't know uh, how we uh, it could have gone on as long as it did, but uh, I, you know, I found uh, a lot of evidence of failure of the state to properly regulate these dumps. And, and later that evidence became very compelling and, it, uh, and I put it all on paper uh, to which there's still to this day has been no response wow. from the state. But really they failed to regulate it. There were federal regulations and state regulations that came into effect in the early 90s and they pretty much just missed it. They just pretty much let it go. But it really wasn't until it shut down and the jobs were gone, the tax base was done, gone, that everybody was really willing to take a good hard look under the hood and see what was out there. And what I found was surprising to me because I had not been involved in the solid waste regulation aspect of this facility 
to a great deal before. It really was not something that we had sunk our teeth into, and a lot of the information really was not publicly publicly available. It was in DEQ's files. Their inspectors knew there were drums out there. They didn't do anything about it. Most of us have become expert multitaskers. Dual monitors, side hustles, screen time, and career changes. It's tough to find someone today that spends 26 minutes focused on one thing, not to mention 26 years. But Peter Nielsen spent 26 years focused on Missoula water quality, and in that time, the health of the Clark Fork River has improved tremendously. For a job, um, you know, having a job like I did, having a career where I made a substantial difference in the community and benefited the environment is something that I can look back on and be satisfied in. And there are other jobs that I could have done that I wouldn't have had that satisfaction. So I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I had that. He'll be the first to tell you that we still have a lot of work to do. next episode of Toxic, what happens after the mill closes, and who is responsible for the cleanup? We're asking them to spend insane amounts of money, so they're going to fight back. I mean, it's their goals are not the, the EPA's goals, according to Allie, and I believe them, are to get this as thoroughly cleaned up as possible for human life and for, for, for ecological health. The principally responsible party's goals are to get out of this by spending as little money as possible. This has been Toxic, The Mess at Smurfit Stone, a podcast produced by Clark Fork Coalition in collaboration with Pintler Group right here in Missoula, Montana. Looking to learn more about the Smurfit Stone cleanup and the Clark Fork Coalition? Visit clarkfork.org to find ways to get involved, including writing letters to the EPA, following us on all of our online platforms, and putting pressure on responsible parties. Rivers don't wait. Let's clean Smurfit now. <laughs>